Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our monthly update, looking at all of the posts from the blog site in May. I know it's coming to you in the middle of June, but really, this is filling that middle of the month void. When you've listened to all those amazing podcasts that are very efficient and get themselves out on the first of the month, we all know who they are. And you've listened to them and you need something else to get you through to next month's flurry of activity. So here it is, our May podcast. Simon, you've been busy. You've been doing the ATAC course. I know that's uh, seeing some amazing stuff on Twitter. That sounds like an excellent course to be involved with. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, it's my second time going to the course. Uh, first time as an instructor candidate, having completed the course, oh gosh, about 18 months ago. When I first went along, I wanted to learn some of the content. Obviously, I want to be a better clinician, but I really wanted to experience what their approach to simulation and education is. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's a game-changer. It's incredible. The, the level of the simulations, the immersion, the thought that goes behind it, the planning, the preparation, the delivery, the feedback. There is, you know, it's an overused phrase, isn't it? There is nothing quite like it. And if you have the opportunity to go, I've got no financial interest in this at all. If you have the opportunity to go, please do. It is remarkable. It is expensive. And I know that puts a, a few people off. But I think when you go on the course, you can, you can appreciate, I can appreciate now um, where the costs come from. You'll just do stuff which is remarkable. Day one, lots of clinical challenge. And then days two and three, building in those environmental and those additional stresses that we find in uh, pre-hospital and emergency care in, in, in the ED. Absolutely tremendous. Would strongly recommend it. And you'll meet some lovely people. Some of that sounds an amazing course and it is on my sort of bucket list of things to do. I think the waiting list is now full and the next course you can book on is deep in 2022 when obviously the world will be different. We'll all be allowed outside. We'll be able to go to rock concerts. We'll be able to eat and then lick each other's food and then share it and all the things that we've missed doing in this uh, crazy last year and a half that we've been doing. Now, let's get on to the posts. Simon, you're up first. This is something I know you had personal involvement with, the Manchester Arena bombing data that was published in the EMJ. What can we actually learn from this paper, from your experiences in Manchester? It's been a really interesting project to be involved in. People might be surprised that this is the first major publication to come out of the Manchester bombing since the actual event, which is way back on the 22nd of May 2017. And the reason for that is because we wanted to produce good quality data. We wanted to describe exactly what had happened in the incident. But of course, everybody knows what happened. So this is an entirely identifiable event. And we know the names of the patients who sadly were killed. And we know the, the name of the bomber and we know lots of and the names of people who are actually injured in it. So it's quite difficult to report something which is both so well known, but in a way which is also uh, protects to a degree the, the patient confidentiality. But it's also vitally important that we get the data out there so that we can use it for planning in the future. Nice paper, I think. And we looked across all the TARN data, that's the Trauma Audit and Research Network data, for patients who were admitted. And actually TARN put together a special module now, which is active now for major incidents, that we can record data for people who are not admitted because they traditionally don't get into the database. And we've used that to analyze the injury severities of patients who come through and found out about the, the consequences of the devastating injuries from uh, nail bomb attacks within a civilian environment. So there's quite a lot of data in there about the injury patterns and the severities and what which sort of patients get the most severe injuries. But for me, one of the most interesting journeys was how do you publish something in this way about such a public event? And that has been the delay having gone through ethics committees with the BMJ, the EMJ, and various different uh, reviewers. But essentially what we had to do is we had to write to everybody involved in the incident and ask their permission, which was largely given. There was one dissenter who we've had to publish the full um, reason for their dissent, but then it went back to the ethics committee and back again. Look, I guess what I'm saying is 
If you are involved in a major incident, then please, please, please look at the methodologies that we've developed putting this paper together so that you can safely, honestly, fairly and kindly present the data on injury severities in a way which will help others. After you've collected all that data, and it sounds like a huge amount of work, what can we actually learn from the data itself? What are your three take-home messages from this whole experience? They're common um, messages that we've, we've seen in other incidents in the past. So patients will present not in the order of priority, but in the order that they get to hospital. That's just the way it's going to be. The, the time in the emergency department is relatively brief in terms of the, the overall picture. So a lot of resources are based on that initial reception phase, you know, to some extent rightly because it's the most chaotic. But actually the lag of this goes on for, for days and weeks afterwards, particularly with these sort of instances where you have to do multiple surgical procedures on patients. And then the third thing is how it actually impact, impacts on the whole system. We're under lots of pressure at the moment, aren't we, in terms of beds and, and space and flow. But it's quite clear from the data that when this happened, and we saw a whole system reduction in emergency department attendances and much better performance in the system, which does imply somewhat that there's a maybe maybe we don't have enough resources on a day to day basis. But the impact of a major incident like this, even though it's a relatively short period of time, is felt across a health economy for several weeks afterwards. Let's hope that this is not a regular occurrence, but there are times to be prepared. And I know that on the ATAC course you've just been doing, it's all about trying to think about those occasions which don't happen often but you have to be ready for on a individual patient basis and this is the same probably on a system basis so have a look have a read if you haven't seen it already have a look at the paper and just think about how would your system cope and what would happen if something as dreadful and horrible as this happened in your area it seems after that simon that i've had a bit of a flurry of blog writing i, I don't really understand what happened to me I, I think it must have just been i don't know the sunshine was getting to me so next was a post on anaphylaxis about the recess council guideline and this was just a little note really to highlight the bits that were new and I think there are some bits that are important for us I always bang on about this one and you'll have seen it before in blog posts I've written and then the induction talks about the one equation that seems to matter to me in emergency medicine about what the blood pressure is actually made up of and the post just goes through a little bit of those different causes of shock before we talk about anaphylaxis. And really the take-home messages are that I think adrenaline is good, oxygen is good, steroids, not really needed, antihistamines, not really needed. And those are the take-home bits. And of course, the key thing for us in emergency medicine, where we're worried about getting patients through our departments, is that you don't necessarily have to keep patients in for hours. You can actually get these patients safely discharged if the anaphylaxis is resolved. They've got a good response and a complete resolution of their symptoms. And that's even if they've had an auto-injector of adrenaline. So that old, oh, they had adrenaline, I've got to keep them overnight. This guideline really knocks that on the head. So there are some really helpful bits in here, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a really useful recap. And I thought the real focus on adrenaline being the treatment of anaphylaxis, which we've talked about before and we kind of know it. But there often still seems that little reluctance to give adrenaline. It seems like a big step to go up and maybe I'll just try this person who's a little bit hypotensive and a little bit wheezy um, and maybe their airway's swollen a bit. Maybe I'll just give them some antihistamines first and see how we go over the next hour or so. You know, we need to absolutely bin that one and go down the adrenaline route first. And there's some, there's some really good little first aid devices there about, you know, lying the patient flat and giving a bolus of Hartman's if it's required. But yeah, I would agree with you. I think the, the discharge planning advice and the observation advice I think here is excellent. Yeah, so something to think about there, isn't it? And with all these guidelines, I think even senior emergency doctors who probably work, dare I say, beyond the guidelines, 
And when you look at the evidence base for a lot of the stuff we do, they acknowledge early on that not there's not a lot of clinical trials for this stuff, is there? And it does frustrate me sometimes that this is quoted back at us as gospel truth. Uh, but I think here there are bits we can take away that are useful. But this is one of those things that I think is for everyday use by everyday clinicians, not the experts we're talking about in the emergency department, pre-hospital care, intensive care. They may well see other spectrums of this and may use it differently. So that's anaphylaxis. Yeah, adrenaline, don't be scared of it. I mean, remember that we all produce it all the time. Uh, I probably got a little bit going now, maybe. So uh, although it's a cardiac arrest drug, it is one of those things that uh, can be used on a spectrum. It's not just when you're dead. Can we also mention that we will stop calling it adrenaline when somebody discovers the epinephric gland? It's all about, if you like, Greek or Latin, I think. And I'm really on the fence about that. I haven't yet decided which I prefer. I, you know, I'm working on thinking about it. I heard it. you can use either of them. They both work, apparently. Apparently so. Now, Simon, here we go. Favourite word, well-being. Okay, bye. Everybody's favourite word, isn't it? And right now, as I say the word well-being, half our audience are engaged and thinking, yep, yep, crack on. The other half are thinking, why don't you just back off? Anyway, this is a post about the St. Emlyn's hierarchy of well-being. And this was really just trying to reflect my thoughts and hopefully thoughts of others about what's important when you're thinking about the well-being of your teams and quite what's going on in emergency departments across the country at the moment. I don't really understand, but it is busy, isn't it? Yeah, oh, God. I mean, June's supposed to be the one month which isn't winter. I don't know what's going on. This is about the things that I felt, and I, I'm pleased to say some people seem to agree, that really can make a difference. And I'd encourage you to have a look at that and have a think about the bits at the bottom of that pyramid, the things that you can build on. You know, do you have enough toilets in your department? I mean, this week, we've got two toilets in our department that have broken seats. One of them's in the male toilet. So, I mean, so long as you're standing up, you're okay. But any need to sit down and you're in trouble. And this is the bit that matters, I think. Making sure you can go for a poo, making sure you can get water, making sure you can get access to stuff. Uh, maybe I shouldn't mention the word poo on a podcast. I don't know. But it seems to be that that's the stuff we should concentrate on. I think the point in the in the post is that, and I think what the the 50% the of the, the audience who may be sort of regaling against the well-being thing is there's a justifiable pushback about, um, okay, we're going to do a well-being session. We're going to um, do a, an activity. We're going to sniff some candles and do some yoga. But actually, unless you've dealt with the fundamentals, the fact that it's 42 degrees in one end of your department, there's no air conditioning, there's nowhere to go to the toilet, you can't get regular breaks. The, the staff room has been um, designated. It's only got two people allowable in it now due to code regulations, which means that we need approximately 72 hours in a day to get everybody through their breaks. Those are the kind of things which quite frankly, doing the higher level stuff, um, which is, you know, would be great, but without doing those basic physiological safety belonging elements, which you've linked to um, Maslow's um, hierarchy, of, um, I think it's bonkers. And people will push back against them when they can recognize that what's being suggested will improve their well-being is inconsequential as compared to the basics of physiological and safety and belonging in the department. And let's be honest, why is this? It's because these things we're talking about can be difficult. Putting in new toilets in an old building is not straightforward. Employing security staff to make sure that your staff are safe when they're confronted by patients who are aggressive and agitated. It costs money. It takes time. It's difficult. Well-being is difficult and it involves investment at a high level, much more than giving people a badge. And I realise I'm on a soapbox, so I'm going to step back 
I'm sure we've said more than enough about this, but hopefully this will ring true for at least one executive who may come across this and will start to look at how they can make the normal things available that any other employee in any other environment would expect us just that's what you get. Because really, we're not asking for much here, are we? We're not no. asking for much. And just for the record, I will have the badge because I'm a bit of a badge collector, but I want all the other stuff as well. Yeah. Okay. A so on badge, probably. Now, next up was the podcast. I hope you've all listened to a two-part podcast about adult congenital heart disease in the emergency department. So grateful to Sam Fitzsimmons, who's one of the consultants at Southampton for doing this for us. It definitely helped me with my understanding. And in I think only a week after I saw a patient of theirs in our department and was able to immediately know what to do. I realize it seems a bit niche, but some, I'm guessing anybody anywhere can see these patients now. There's a large number of young people who've had their abnormalities corrected, who are living relatively normal lives, who are soon to start going on a holiday, and they may turn up in an ED near you. Absolutely true. And we see plenty um, in Manchester care of these patients has transformed in the last decade. And we're going to see a lot more of these patients coming into adult practice, wherever they may be. And actually, we're also going to see the same for chronic lung disease um, from patients who've had chronic lung diseases in, in paediatrics who are now transitioning into adult care. So I think generally, we as adult clinicians, I do a bit of peds as well, as you know, but um, as adult emergency physicians, I think we're definitely going to have to understand this a lot better than we previously had. And to reiterate with you, Ian, having done a bit of work around this in the past, if you go up to a patient who's got ACHD and you even look as if you've got some vague idea of what's going on, they're so happy to see you because, quite frankly, and you speak to them and you speak to their patient um, advocate groups, they're so used to people not being understanding of their condition and not understanding how significant and serious it can be if it's treated badly. So a small amount of learning here can make a massive difference to you, to your patients, um, and to uh, and to the systems we work in. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to it or read the post, if the words Fontan circulation or Eisenmenger syndrome or transposition of the great arteries or coarctation of the aorta all bring you out in a rash and make you feel anxious and boost your adrenaline, then go and have a read. It's all there for you. And Sam does a brilliant job of explaining just how we look after these patients. And, and as we talked about for some of those things where this condition, this is what you need to look out for. And they're very straightforward. So, you know, a patient with a Fontan who comes in with a tachyarrhythmia, that is bad. That's all you need to remember, really. You don't need to know everything else. I completely agree. If you know a little bit, it can really help. And as emergency physicians, it's our, it's our role to try and know a little bit about many, many things, isn't it? And I think that's worth listening to. There's one more thing you should remember about adult congenital heart disease in the UK, certainly, is that there's always a consultant clinician on for ACHD in your local level one center. So if you see a patient in the emergency department with an ACHD related issue, or they've got something else which is significantly wrong with them, but we need to know about their ACHD impact on that, then just phone them. That's what they're there for. That's what the patient should know. And please, 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 please don't just give it a whirl on these patients because you could really do some significant harm. So let's just flick away from hearts for a moment and think about trauma, Simon. This was about hypocalcemia and major transfusion. And I have to say the inspiration for this post really did come from Scott Weingart on MCRIT, who I know you'll all listen to, but he has done so much over the last decade to bring things to our attention. And really the reason for writing this was just to bring this more into the UK fold, just in case there's somebody hiding under a rock who doesn't listen to MCRIT. 
Uh, Simon, are you using calcium in your major transfusion protocols? We are. Um, we're probably not in the official protocol using it as much as we should. And I think we need to shift to using it even earlier and more often and keeping an eye on it. And as you sort of quite rightly point out in the paper, there's increasing evidence now that hypocalcemia has a very strong association with bad outcomes in trauma. And the physiology seems to make sense. It seems to be a readily available, not expensive medication. We now, in our pre-hospital service in Hampshire, we do have a vial of calcium chloride in the blood box, if you like, next to the blood. So as you take the blood out, you'll see it there in front of you. And the aim will be to give it early. And I think that's going to be the way forward. And it seems that there's been broad agreement with that across the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere uh, after writing this post and after people have listened to Scott. So something to think about in your own service. And remember, there's a lot to think about when you've got a patient bleeding in front of you. This is just one of those things to add in, I think. Do you use, um, use calcium chloride rather than calcium gluconate? So probably worth mentioning why is that? Well, calcium chloride just is the one that we have. We've moved away from gluconate anyway, and the amount of calcium in it is three times. Uh, so it's it's much more readily available. I did look it up. I think it's one gram of calcium is in t- 10 mils of 10% calcium chloride, and that's a good start. And the aim as put forward in the papers and put forward by us and by Scott is that you actually give this as soon as you think your patient's going to need a major transfusion. So you're not waiting. This is really going up when you're cracking open your blood and you're thinking, I'm going to have to give more than one unit here. This is not treating anemia. This is treating a volume loss. And I'm going to give calcium at the same time. Just that thing. It's a bit like TXA. That's become part of our routine now, hasn't it? So TXA, calcium, blood, FFP. And we're moving on to other things, aren't we? Fibrinogen and other stuff like that. All moving things forward. Yeah, there's a couple of other things with the calcium which have really struck me recently. One is um, we did a blog post a few um, years back now when we looked at the contents of a bag of packed cells and noted that the potassium level in those is about 18 or 19 millimoles per litre. It's very easy, and we're seeing it now in major transfusion, that you make your patients hyperkalemic very early on. And of course, we know that calcium is protective against that hyperkalemia. So that's another good reason why you should be doing this. You're right, the calcium chloride is three times as much um, calcium as the calcium gluconate, so you don't have to give it as often. And it's much more effective. And also, lastly, we're now moving um, in some transfusion protocols to giving FFP first before PAC cells. And people say, oh, well, you don't need to give the calcium. Well, you do, because FFP also will reduce your calcium levels in the blood. And I like your idea of calcium chloride. I don't think we've moved across to that yet. We still need gluconate, but it's food for thought. So something else to think about with trauma. There's lots coming on the line with trauma at the moment. It's exciting stuff, making those, I think they're one percenters, aren't they? just to try and take the patients who are in real trouble and give them a chance. And the last post of what has been a busy month is a personal reflection, really, that led to me knowing about a condition that I actually didn't know about before. So this is about spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And although the names have been changed to protect the innocent, as it were, the person involved with this was really encouraging me to write this post because when she had this, I have to say, I didn't really know about SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection. It was a new one on me and I I like to think I'm moderately educated. But this was a a friend of mine and and the story's true. I got the phone call from her husband just saying, oh, she looks a bit dodgy, mate. And she's fit and well, late 40s, doesn't smoke, no family history, chest pain. And it was, oh, do you think, do I really need, it was a weekend, a sunny day, do I really need to go to hospital? Do I? So I said, well, yes, please do. And then I had a troponin in the thousands. And it turned out she had spontaneous coronary artery dissection. So this post just goes through a little bit of who gets SCAD 
and how to be a bit more aware of what's going on and what you might need to do about it. I think the key here is that a lot of these patients, firstly, they're mainly female patients, uh, and a lot of them have no other risk factors. So if you're reviewing 10 patients and there's a queue of doctors talking to you, oh, I've got this woman who says she's got chest pain and uh, she's fit and well, no family history, the pain's got better. Her ECG, which can be normal, looks normal. Uh, I just thought I'd send her home because we're really busy. Think again, because actually they may need some further treatment and they may need other things considering. And the post goes into those things. I'm sure SCAD was something you're very familiar with, Simon, but it wasn't a new one on me. And it was a new one on me up until the point when I saw David Carr talk about it at the USEM conference a couple of years back. And we put some links into David Carr's presentation on this online as well, which you can have a look at. So David Carr, a friend of ours from Canada, who does some fantastic talks. So yeah, up until then, I agree with you. It was a mystery. But then I think it, it probably illustrates how much you know about your cardiology processes. So if you're following your patients up that come through your department and go on to PCI, and you genuinely go and find out what happened to them afterwards, you'll find these cases. If you're the sort of um, system which doesn't have that ability to have that information coming back, then maybe you've never heard of it before, because it is out there. If you've genuinely never heard of it before, I'm going to ask you the questions where, how do you follow up your PCI patients? Well, how do you know what happened to them? Can you look at their NGOs? We can actually, in our system, we can go back and have a look at the NGOs. So if I send someone up to PCI, and go and have a look later. Not entirely sure I always understand what I'm looking at, but I can always find a friendly cardiologist to explain it. That is a key part of emergency medicine now, and I really do make time for And We're always encouraged, aren't we, to review patients, reflect, but it used to be you'd have to go and look at their notes and go on the ward and find the patient and look in their trolley. Now, I don't know what your hospital's like, Simon, and those for other listeners, but everything is on the computer now. Everything. So all I need to do is find the patient's hospital number from our ED system, stick it into another system, and I get everything. And of course, I found out about this because my friend told me what she had, but I would have looked it up. And there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in our hospitals that if we knew about, I think it would really help us. And it is some time well spent if you can go and look. And any consultant I've ever emailed and asked about a condition, I've always been really giving uh, with their knowledge. I'm really happy to to, to reply pretty fast, actually, and, and help me understand more. And uh, about to start a new project where I've asked a lot of our consultants in the hospital, what, what do you wish an emergency physician would know? And hopefully we'll be bringing those as a podcast series, just like we did with Sam. And those things, which the questions you probably, you know, you'd like to know the answer to, but you just think, oh, well, they'll maybe think I'm a bit thick. But, you know, I gave that up a long time worrying about that. I've accepted that. And enthusiasm beats uh, idiocy every time. Simon, that's May. We're into summer, we're into June, we're, we're progressing with uh, our stage four, is it, of lockdown roadmap journeys. We're still not quite there yet. It means there's no uh, school fates, very sad. None of that prize giving stuff that we normally have to sit through at this time of year for those parents. Uh, I don't mind, don't tell anyone. And, uh, and on we go. Hopefully, we'll, I mean, by this time next month, we'll be hopefully facing down what has been called, well, no, let's not call it Freedom Day. But being able to go outside day and that sort of thing. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can go outside now, Ian. You're not, you're not too restricted, but I know exactly what you mean. I think we're all a bit exhausted by it. Um, and particularly with the, with the, as you said at the beginning, the numbers hitting the EDs at the moment is just crazy. Um, our weights are just insane. So I think people are pretty tired. And I think a little bit of a break would be lovely. But, you know, if we can't happen, it can't happen. We'll just have to see. As we always say, please look after yourselves, look after each other. 
and do your very best you can in the system that we're working in. And at St. Emily's, we'll try and keep things coming to you to educate you and hopefully occasionally entertain. Please do take care, everyone. Have fun. Thank you.